you can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. I'm Allison Chantel, and this is Success, How I Did It from Business Insider. In January, I hosted a discussion at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland, with two inspiring executives, Janet Foudy, who's the chairman and CEO of Deloitte Consulting, and Cindy Robbins, who's the president and chief people officer of Salesforce. Robbins started at Salesforce 12 years ago and worked her way up the ranks. I got a call from Mark, and he said, you're now going to report to me. Definitely, that was kind of my oh my moment. And we also talked about challenges from gender pay gaps to the shortage of women mentors. At Deloitte, Foudy learned about all this before she even unpacked her desk. The offer letters of my two male colleagues who started the same summer as I did were sitting on the recruiter's desk, and I could not help but see them. It was almost double pay. I started by asking Foudy how she found the company she now leads. I joined Deloitte right out of business school, planning to do a classic two-year stint as a consultant and then figure out what I wanted to be when I grew up. And 26 years later now, um, find myself with the great privilege of leading um, this wonderful business. I will tell you that for most of the things over the course of my career, um, I have focused on just a couple of criteria. Am I doing really interesting things with really interesting people? And am I creating impact? Um, And that can obviously have lots of different definitions, but that's the criteria with which I measured what I was doing at every step. But if you had asked me certainly 26 years ago and probably 20 years ago whether this role was something that I directly aspired to, the answer would be I love what I'm doing. I love the people I'm doing it with and the impact that I'm having. And that's really um, what grounds uh, grounds me and really what matters at the end of the day. And now, Cindy, you've been with Salesforce for about 12 years. 12 years. And risen through the ranks there, clearly. Um, so uh, one thing that you were part of and you helped with is this thing called Women's Surge. Mm-hmm. So what is that, and how did you wind up managing this team of 700? I Well, I can't take credit for the name. Uh, that is my boss, uh, Mark Benioff, CEO of Salesforce. Um, it started like four years ago. He holds these quarterly management meetings for the top managers in the company. And it's a tight group, very intimate meeting. And one day he looked around the room and he just said, where are the women in this room? There are no women. And he made a very overt action to say that going forward, on those meetings, 30% would be made up of high potential women, the feature heads of product, heads of engineering, heads of marketing, et cetera. And so I got invited to that meeting for the first time. I wasn't the head of HR at the time. I was, uh, I think, still in this HR generalist type role. 
And um, my job was to to keep getting invited to that meeting. You know, once that the door opens, you have accountability, right, to stay in that room and to keep that seat at the table. So I applaud him for that. I surged my career after that, and that's kind of why he calls it the women's surge. And uh, probably six months after that first meeting, uh, my predecessor left the company, uh, and he asked me to take the big job. So, wow. so what do you think? You've both been at your companies for a long time. What do you think your companies and your coworkers and you all did um, to be able to find a place where you could really grow? I always think about what's the thing that you're bringing to the conversation or to the situation that's a given mm-hmm. that you know you're wonderful at and that you're bringing and, and, and what's the thing that's stretching you up? I think of almost like a stair step. You've got the, the platform that's the thing that you're really good at and what's the thing that you're stretching and growing in. So I really challenge myself as well as my team to always be thinking about, okay, what are you bringing and what are you going to use this next opportunity or step to really stretch and grow in and around for yourself? And that, that has helped me sort of keep a, a, a fresh frame, um, both for myself as well as for the team. The other piece that helped me, I think, really grow my career was I had a lot of advocates. I had some champions. And I had a mentor who invested in me very early in my tenure at Salesforce. He actually uh, started at Salesforce like 17 years ago, came in as an MBA Stanford intern, uh, and got mentored by Mark and then became the CEO of the company. And he's now since left. And he's still my mentor. But he was what I would say uh, my biggest advocate, biggest champion, but my toughest critic. And that that is really important, right? Because I think to grow your career, you need that criticism. And it's tough to hear sometimes, but it really did help me grow. And having those advocates and champions, and he kept telling me, what do you want your brand to be, right? And these are questions I never really thought about. And he kept challenging me, and he he said, you have to get also comfortable with being uncomfortable. So he always would push me to do things kind of outside my comfort zone, which helped me. Does anyone really reach to the top alone? I think the answer is no, no matter who's there. So what is the difference between a mentor and a sponsor, and how do you look at that role now that I assume you all are mentoring people as well and helping them? There's clearly a very big difference between a mentor and a sponsor. And we've really tried to shift the conversation in our organization to be much more anchored in and around sponsorship than mentorship. Um, Mentorship obviously being something that is important, advice, counsel, guidance, but it's behind the scenes. I think of it much more like a coach. Sponsorship um, is putting your political capital on the line to help somebody. Very, very different. The level of investment that you that you personally take to sponsor someone is um, a very different conversation than I'm going to give you advice. I can give anybody mm-hmm. advice entirely free. My political capital as a sponsor, very different. What we found in and around um, gender and underrepresented minorities is that we have to be much more disciplined around making sure that sponsorship happens because it doesn't happen always as naturally and organically. I think part of the tricky thing is because it is about political capital, you need a lot of courage to be a sponsor, especially if it's someone that you um, have not sort of grown up in and around or doesn't look exactly like you. So that's, that's some of the things I've been thinking about and processing and evolving in this conversation. Yeah. Um, another thing to reach the top is you need to take risk and you need to put yourself in somewhat uncomfortable positions. Mm-hmm. So have you two found, um, was there a role that you didn't feel maybe quite ready for that you were like, oh God, this is it, but I need yeah. to step up. And then how do you kind of get over that feeling and just get there? Every role I've ever had. Yeah, I was going to say. It's <laughs> good to know because I feel the same way. I think, um, so three and a half years ago when my predecessor left, 
I was kind of in this global HR generalist role. And I had I had a lot of tenure, built a lot of good relationships, had a lot of sponsors, advocacy, um, but I was very comfortable, right? I was I was very successful in what I was doing and I felt good about it. And when I got the call about uh, taking on the head of HR, I became in an uncomfortable place very quickly. And it's really hard because it's, you know, of course I'm going to take the job. But at the time, I was going to report to the COO of the company. And that was my mentor. The person that invested in me at the very beginning of my tenure, for the first time, I was now going to report to him. After I got that job, three weeks later, he decided to leave Salesforce. And then I got a call from Mark. And he said, you're now going to report to me. And that became kind of my, oh my, moment. Even though I had a long tenure at Salesforce and I knew Mark, you know, this was going to be a big shift, you know, reporting to the CEO of the company. But I got comfortable eventually and um, now being mentored by, you know, one of the top CEOs out there. So it, it all worked out, but definitely that was kind of my oh my moment. So I um, am propelled by always being sort of on the edge of what I feel that I can do. Now, I do think that um, women generally are um, less confident mm-hmm. in knowing. Yeah. You know, I tell our young women, especially our young women in India, but our young women to be, you know, really uh, thoughtful about how they um, position themselves for net new things because I, I remind them that the men next to them will be fearless in doing that. But I do absolutely live each and every day waking up thinking, okay, what are the things I have to do today? What do I know how to do and what do I not know how to do? And if I ever get to the place where I know how to do them all, then something has gone very astray. It was became the most apparent to me. I was a youngish partner and had sort of first responsibility for a small part of the business. And I had a partner in my group who was struggling and the national leader who was based somewhere else said, oh, Janet, why don't you talk to him about the issues? And so quickly dumped that on me. And we sat down to talk about what was going on. He goes, I don't know why I'm struggling. This job just isn't that hard. And it was a real epiphany for me. And I asked him, I said, well, do you wake up sort of every day, you know, thinking about how you're going to navigate the day? And what? no, 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 I wake up totally calm and comfortable. And it was such a clarifying moment for me that complacency for him had sort of taken him off the rails. I think it's important to realize that you don't need to know all the answers. You don't have to have all the answers. You don't have to be the smartest in the company at every aspect, as long as you have a really strong team that you can lean on for the parts where you're still getting up to speed or you're still learning, I think. And I think we've, we've been talking a lot in our organization about courage. Mm-hmm. And I think the courage to surround yourself with people who are different from you on many dimensions um, and, and will push you. Someone once told me, they were like, Janet, your team is so aligned. You know, you're surrounding yourself with yes people. And I thought, oh my goodness, if you could sit in our executive committee and watch, it is the furthest thing from that. We have incredibly intense debate and discussion. Are we aligned when we leave? Absolutely, for all the right reasons. But the courage to surround yourself with people who will challenge you and push you is something I feel I've matured a lot over the course of my career in as well. When you get this huge new job, how do you spend your first 30, 60, 90 days? How do you make sure you set yourself up for success? For me, it is about two things. Um, It is being clear about my principles and values, um, but that's about the only talking I do. The rest is all listening. And so I go on pretty intensive um, and extensive listening tours and conversations, and that's everything from 
um, our most junior, junior staff to our most tenured partners. That is one-on-ones, that is small groups, um, lots of conversations over dinners. So I, I go into heavy-duty listening mode. And then because I'm a quant by background, I also get really smart about the analytics underlying um, the topic. So those are the sort of three things I do so that when I get to about the 60-day mark, I can start to put a strong point of view on the table um, that's really well-informed and where I've begun to build consensus through all the conversations I've been in. So you do have to go into listening mode. You can't slam an agenda down anyone's throat or anything like that. Um, so I spent a lot of time listening to the team, getting their feedback, and then you align them, right? That's very, very important. And that's probably what we spent a lot of time at Salesforce doing. And that's what we do through the business plan, which we call a V2 mom at Salesforce. But aligning people to what they're actually going to achieve for that year and the next year is really, really important. Yeah, I was going to ask you a little bit later, but we can do this now. Okay. What is V2 Mom? Uh, so the V2 Mom was uh, created by um, Mark since inception of the company, and it stands for vision, what you're going to aspire to do for the year, uh, values, the set of values that will achieve that vision. Methods are the actions that you're going to take for the year. Obstacles are the obstacles, the, the obvious hurdles that you're going to have to overcome. And measures are how you measure success. It always starts with the corporate V2 mom, which is Mark and the management team coming together. And then from there, it's a trickle down, right? So from Mark's V2 mom, then Cindy does her V2 mom. And then Cindy's people do her V2 mom. And then every employee has their V2 mom. They are all done usually by uh, the, the first quarter of the year. And it's all transparent. So anyone can access anyone's uh, V2 mom in the company. It's, it's the business plan. It's an alignment tool. It's a way to get your teams organized. It's also a way for your teams to understand what part they play in the success of the company. So that's the V2 mom. So as we've been starting this dialogue today, there's lots of things that, I, that you and I have very much in yeah. common. But I can tell you that leading in a partnership, um, can you imagine... Um, uh, to, I, uh, within our consulting business, I have 2,000 partners. Um, each of them is an entrepreneur unto themselves and thinks that they are absolutely king of their castle. And so we are all about shepherding and aligning without the structure, which I'm incredibly jealous of, um, of that level <laughs> of that level of, um, of infrastructure and discipline because we are in the herding cats business against a very aggressive agenda, um, which is uh, which is really fun, but it does create some very different obstacles in terms of the types of conversations you have um, and how you lead each and every day. So I'm going to take that back and see if I can just pepper just a little bit of that in. Just a little. Just a yeah. little. So one thing I wanted to ask you also about is how you developed your own leadership style. Mm -hmm. It can be really tempting to feel like you need to emulate the person that was in the role before you or to do what your boss did. Um, so how did you come into your own? That was very hard for me. Mostly because I'm an introvert and I've always struggled with that because I always felt it was kind of viewed as a bad thing, as a sign of weakness. And I've embraced it and, and, and I know that it's a, it's a leadership style that is great, you know, and it should be viewed as a positive thing and not as a weak thing. But I think the number one thing is just being your authentic self and really staying true to who you are, your words, your message, because that will come across. And I remember it's really hard because when you fill someone other, another person's shoes who was an extrovert and so out there, uh, or you work for someone who was so out there, you're challenged kind of about who you are as a leader. 
but you have to really stay true to who you are because you cannot influence, you cannot motivate, you cannot inspire anybody. And I think that's what I've learned through my leadership style is, is around that and really embracing who I am as an introvert and as an effective leader. Everyone that I've replaced has been absolutely a 42 long male, um, perfect, you know, textbook 42 long. And obviously I am not that. Um, and so emulating it is absolutely hopeless. And that I think the combination of good feedback from my clients who really don't care about the politics or what's happening within our organization and knowing that there is no way that I could emulate those people that I've replaced sort of gave me that confidence. Authenticity has obviously become part of the vernacular. It was not, as I was growing up, was not ever part of the conversation. It was sort of one of those things that was not talked about once in a while. You might get a comment about, well, that's an unusual way to go about presenting that, but never, oh, and that's a good thing because it's your authentic self. When it became the most clear to me that this conversation had sort of come full circle, I'd just come into to the role to lead the business and had lots of notes and calls from my clients and from our business partners, um, and of course, from the partners within the organization. And the notes were, many of them were lovely and thoughtful and, and um, as you would expect, very gracious. But one, one of my partners, and as I remind you all, 2,000 partners, each with their own opinion, they will be very direct with you. And it's not someone I knew very well. And he said, congratulations, Janet. I'm really excited for you in the role. And the best thing is you did it your way. Mm-hmm. And classic girl reaction, I'm like, what the hell does that mean? And I obsessed and I obsessed and I obsessed about what does he mean and what is that really saying? And I got really agitated. And of course, all the nice notes I ignored and I just read and reread and reread and obsessed over that one. And sort of where I came to peace was because this authenticity conversation was evolving at that same time is that actually was the positive view of that was that is absolutely what he was trying to say was it was not a linear path. I took a lot of career twists and turns, especially when I was, um, had young children, but I also had um, a very different style than the 42 long um, that had preceded me. So one thing I wanted to ask Cindy about specifically, uh, I know some work you've done at Salesforce that's been really important has been around the gender pay, pay gap. So uh, at the time when my career surged and I, and I was promoted into the big job, um, a colleague of mine uh, who's a product executive at Salesforce, Leila Seika, her and I go back 20 years uh, pre-Salesforce, just personal friendship there. And we both got promoted at the same time. She also got elevated around when I did. And we, after coming down from our euphoria of being kind of promoted, we put our heads together because we're like, why isn't it easier for women to get elevated at Salesforce? Why can't we see this happen a little bit more? And what are the things that are prohibiting it? And so we kind of put our heads together and we talked about things like, at the time, just making it a good workplace for working moms, so increasing the maternity leave, more programs to really identify who those heads of engineering and product, et cetera, we're going to be. So we can kind of bring those people a little bit more overtly up. And the third was pay. And so I had a one-on-one coming up with Mark and I invited Layla to that meeting. I don't really put agendas together ahead of time with Mark. So I just went in. He did not know what I was going to go in with at the time. And we pitched him. And when I talked about pay, he said, do we have a problem? And I said, I don't know if we have a problem. We've never done this type of assessment before. I'm confident we have good pay practices, but an audit and equal pay are a little bit different, right? 
But I know that we cannot look under the hood, do the assessment, see a big dollar sign and close it. And he said, go do the audit. We did it, obviously, and it resulted in $3 million. At the time, it impacted about 6% of the population. And then we did the second audit. And, I, and we got some criticism about, well, why did you have to pay again? And why did you do the assessment again? And it's very simple. It's not a one-and-done situation. And I, that was what I told Mark at the time. I said, if we do this, this is now ingrained in our culture. And he said, of course it is. It's part of the DNA of our culture going forward. And that is when we started to shift. And he started to talk about this uh, women's issue more overtly in the company. And that is the tone from the top because that made his direct shift. And it's a trickle down, right? It starts to just shift the behavior in the company. We also had our biggest acquisition year the year before. We acquired 14 companies, which was a record for us. And when you acquire 14 companies, you acquire their pay practices, right? And we had to do the assessment again for that as well. But, you know, you have to put a lot of define processes and systems in order for this to keep going. And so you have to do the assessment regularly to make sure you're staying within those parameters and ensuring you're paying your people equally. So when I started way back when, 26 years ago, um, we were in a down market night. Well, most of you probably won't even remember um, in 1991. And there were only three MBAs that started that summer. And the offer letters of my two male colleagues who started the same summer as I did were sitting on the recruiter's desk. And I'm not a sneaky person whatsoever, but it was such the 90s, these these um, slanted tables, and they were sitting right there. I could not help but see them. So, and I'd gone to a different school, so I sort of rationalized, well, it's a different school, but these were, it was almost double pay. So I didn't think, I compartmentalized it, Mm -hmm. and I had a really, really, really good first year. One of my two colleagues had had a fine first year, and the other had a mediocre first year. So I go in, and I'm pretty unsophisticated at this conversation. I go in for my first compensation conversation at the end of year one, and I'd gotten a modest signing bonus as well as part of starting at a business school. And the person giving me my um, review and compensation said, you had a great year, and here's your raise. And I, I'm a quant. I quickly did the math, and I'm like, wow, I'm going to make less next year than I did last year. And so I did um, about what you would expect from a 25-year-old MBA who's hit with something where she has no idea what's going on. I burst into tears. Uh-huh. So I literally burst into tears. So, you know, I coach women about asking for what they need. Well, that was my response to asking for what I needed. And um, the person was absolutely mortified. Um, and I was trying to pull myself together and explain that I had, thought I'd had a great year. I... Um, suggested that I knew what my colleagues were paid and that I could not face thinking about making less my second year after such a great year. I reflect on how hard it is um, for women in particular to ask what they think they deserve. And so the practices that we've all been putting in place in around not exact asking um, history of compensation, um, which is probably the most important move that we've made to, to get that discipline into the system so that it's natural so we can avoid tears and that horrifying moment that I had early in my career. Um, but, but it is very personal to me uh, that this is an issue that we're collectively tackling as the community to make sure that we are um, not putting our women on the spot to have to ask for what they need, but we are handling it, knowing that there's still a long way to go. And did you get that raise? I did. They actually did adjust my comp. Good. Good. <laughs> not by a lot, but, but I enough so that I was making more than I had the first year. And uh, I still, pl- it was probably 
five years before I was fully caught up, but I felt that my voice had been heard in the conversation. So you two have reached the top. Um, it's incredibly impressive and difficult to do for anyone. But as we sit here at Davos, you are two of the few women in the crowd. How do you think about the leadership example that you set, not just for um, your employees, for the people here, for the people around you, uh, but for really anyone who sees you in your position? I mean, I, I'm taking a cue from my mentor, you know, who said, now you have to pay it forward a little bit. I try to find two or three people and really take the time to invest in them and really support them. And that means being their toughest critic as well as being their biggest champion. That's, and that's inherently what I'm trying to do because that is what helped me get successful. So I'm trying to remember that and give it back. So for me, um, I, I do feel a tremendous responsibility to um, the young women in my own organization, to the young women in the communities of the clients with which I serve, um, and to my daughter and all of her friends. So I do feel a tremendous accountability to pay it forward. Do I really want to share with you all that I burst into tears when I was 26 years old? Um, I've gotten a lot more courage over time to share those stories because I think it's incredibly important um, to understand that men and women are different, that there are lots of different ways with which you can be wildly successful in the things that you choose to do. Um, and so being here and being part of this conversation is incredibly important to me, gives me great energy, um, continues to put me on the edge of pushing myself. And um, it is really a pleasure and a privilege to be able to do so. So that's how I think about great. it. Well, thank you both thank so you. much thank for your you. time. Yeah. Thanks for listening to Success How I Did It from Business Insider. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And please leave us a review. The show is produced by Anna Mazarakis and Dan Richards. Our executive producer is Dan Bobkoff, and I'm Allison Chantel. We'll be back with more success next week.